What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Novice No Longer podcast, episode 31. Today, I have Hunter Gray of Clutch, and we are talking money. Welcome to the Novice No Longer podcast, where top app developers help you build and market your apps. I'm Dan Berg, former tech journalist turned entrepreneur and app developer. Each week, I talk to the creators of some of the top apps in the App Store to unlock the secrets of app success. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hey everyone, my name is Dan and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Novice No Longer podcast. I have a feeling that this is going to be one of the most popular episodes simply because of the topic and this conversation is amazing. I talked to Hunter Gray, he created this app called Clutch and it's so interesting because just maybe like three years ago it was an idea and he took that idea to investors and he was able to pitch it and get investment and actually have investors pay to build the product, to build the company, and it's just going strong. They just released the new version of their application. It used to be called Atlas, and now it's called Clutch. So we talk a little bit about the changes and why they made the change in terms of name and branding and what the problems were that they were trying to solve and how they went about it. And he also walks through the entire process of like how exactly to pitch your app to investors and what you need to say and what you need to show because there's a lot of misinformation out there like five-year projections and stuff. And he talks about why you don't actually need that and what you actually do need. So this is a fantastic episode. And we're also starting this brand new thing this week, which is Ask a Developer. We had one of you, one of the listeners, call in and ask a question. And I'm going to play it on air in the middle of the interview. And he's going to answer your question. And I have to tell you, His answer to the question is probably my favorite part of the entire podcast. I think it starts around minute 40. I don't remember the exact number, but it's around minute 40. So if you skip ahead, actually with this intro in there, it might be a little bit after that. But if anything, like if you get bored with the podcast, which I don't think you will, but seriously, listen to that section. You're really going to enjoy it. And real quick, I'm going to play you that question right now so you know what it is. Hi, my name is Ellen and I'm from San Francisco. I've got a great idea for an app, but it's really complicated and I'm afraid it's going to cost a lot of money to make. Should I try to find an investor? Thanks ahead of time for answering my question. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Awesome. So you can see how somebody who actually has raised money and gone through the process is just going to provide a lot of value to this. And before we jump in, I also want to thank you guys for leaving reviews on iTunes because that really helps me out. I want to read one that just caught my eye. It just was so nice. And thank you. So I'm going to read this uh, review from you guys. Dan brings a journalist style and technique to Novice No Longer that makes for informative discussions and helpful lessons. I look forward to new episodes every week, and I highly recommend this podcast for anyone looking to make the leap and start their own business and follow their true passion. And that was from somebody named Book Leverage. So thank you. This is exactly what I'm trying to do. And the fact that you say this, it it just means that you get it. So thank you guys very much. And these reviews on iTunes, they really help me out because it helps iTunes actually show this podcast to other people and get new listeners. So if you guys like it, if you're enjoying it, please go on there and leave a review. It's It's the best thing that you can do. And if you do, I will possibly read it on the air. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to jump right into this interview with Hunter because there's so much valuable information. I know you're going to love it. And yeah, here you go. Enjoy. Hey, guys, this is Dan again with the Novice No Longer podcast. And I am here today with Hunter Gray, who is the founder of Clutch, which is an app that helps you and all of your friends or all of your coworkers plan meetings, events, where to go, all that amazing stuff. Um, so Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So I always like to start and ask people kind of how they got to where they are. So what is your background and how did you get into apps? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I've sort of been in technology my whole life. When I was a kid, I was I taught you know self taught my myself uh, a few languages, and uh, I was was really interested with you know pushing that magic button that let people see what you were building on the internet. And um, when I went to college, I kind of got a little bit more um, sidetracked away from it, and then kind of after college, got back into it. And um, when I was in sales after college, I kind of experienced a problem that 
you know, no, nobody was really solving. And um, that's kind of what gave me the inspiration to start my own company. Awesome. So you had this idea for the tool that helps you schedule meetings. What was your kind of first step? Like, did you write things down? Did you start sketching? Did you draw? Like, what did you do first? That's a great question, too. Um, sort of, you know, kind of figuring out my normal behavioral flow. You know, it, it sounds like, you know, I didn't have those words back then. But, you know, what was I doing? You know, how was I doing it then? Like, why wasn't it working? Um, <clears throat> most importantly, identifying um, the key points of friction. And for me, that's that's everything because if you can find the points of friction, then you have the best chance for making whatever that friction is disappear and making it better. So start it off um, <clears throat> by kind of finding the points of friction and then collaborating with people and just talking to them, seeing if that they experience the same friction in the same place when scheduling or trying to make a meeting or just even meeting up with friends and um, started to kind of get some feedback from people that this was a pain point that um, they also experienced the the friction that I was experiencing and that they were open to um, a solution. So that was kind of the first step. Interesting. Now, when you're talking about points of friction, so you're basically kind of you wanted to plan meetings with friends, and so you went out and you saw what was out there, and you tried them, and each one of them had like something that you were just not happy with that was too difficult, and, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what you did? Yeah, well, you know, one of the, 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 big, the biggest point of friction that people were saying was, you know, when you schedule, the most important thing to have uh, is the context of your schedule. You know, can I, am I available at that time? Um, so pre, prior to being able to suggest the time that you could meet up or prior to being able to approve a time that you can meet up um, or even a conference call, whatever it might be, you need to look at your calendar. You need to consult that calendar and your availability to even see if you're um, able to take that meeting at that time. So the biggest c- concern and friction, and again, my, my focus was mobile, um, not, not, not just like mobile phones, but like just people who are mobile, people who don't necessarily sit at a desk you know, every single hour of the day. Um, how do they schedule? And the biggest way that they schedule right now is through mobile. And the biggest friction point on mobile was the lack of uh, seeing your availability in the context of scheduling. And that was the largest place. That's kind of where we started. Now, give me a little bit of context here. Like, how, how long ago was this? Was everybody already on smartphones? And that's oh, really why you focused on mobile? Yeah, well, we focused on mobile because I guess it was like 2000, you know, honestly, it's 2014 now, but back in 2010, I had the idea Mm -hmm. um, of doing something like this. But not until about 2011 um, did I really get moving on it, Um, you know, for whatever reason that we we sometimes vacillate for a little while before we actually make a move on it. But um, I think everybody listening will probably be able to relate to that a little bit, (laughs) myself included. Yeah, yeah, we're all guilty of it. And uh, in 2011, I... uh, I went out and started raising capital and because I started to realize that the idea that I had was much greater than, you know, whatever 20 or 30,000 I could throw into it. And, um, and that's when I started going out there and that's really where I started seeing kind of the most feedback because when you sit down with an investor and you say, Hey, give me your money. Uh, every question that you may have forgotten to ask yourself, didn't know to ask yourself, uh, they ask, and uh, it makes you really rethink your positioning of the product. How are you going to attract users? What's going to be different about it? How are you going to communicate that to the market? Uh, how fast can you get to the market? Who's going to build it? And all these things that sort of you need to kind of know before you can really build your company, but you don't need to, to know before you start building your company. Um, they asked. And so it gave me a really great perspective on, on being able to do that. But in 2011, started raising capital. It was mobile at the time because, and still is mobile, just because that's, that's the way the world was moving and still is. And uh, we wanted to solve it on mobile. We thought that the, the problem of scheduling on a computer isn't quite as uh, painful because you can open up two screens. You can have your email open, you can have your chat app open, and you can have your calendar on another window. So you kind of have, I mean, it's still not the easiest thing to do, but it's at least manageable. When it comes to mobile, though, you can't have a split screen. You can't have two screens open at the same time. Now, I know all the Galaxy Note owners on the, on the, on the call are hearing in, and they're thinking, well, you know, I've got the Galaxy Note, and I've got a top screen and a bottom screen. That is so rare. Doesn't count. And Doesn't it, count it, at all. It, it just doesn't. It's, you know, if, it, if it's not working on the iPhone, you're, 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 you're missing a huge demographic. So that's kind of where we started. 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So you had this idea and then you started searching for investors. Did you kind of put together a, a business plan with projections and that's kind of what you went to them? Did you have like sketch prototypes? Did you have like, what did you have that you, you started having these meetings? Sure. Um, and, and I'll just make the uh, one note here that, you know, what I did in 2011, 2012 to raise our first round was, was different than what we had to do in 2013 to raise the next one. And it might be different than whatever you, whoever's listening, you know, if you're looking to raise some capital, it might be different for you now. Um, the times change, you know, the appetites change. People are more interested in consumers sometimes. Sometimes they're more interested in B2B businesses. Um, and when we originally moved, went out into the space, we were sort of like half B2B and half consumer. Uh, we had two kind of really good ideas, one for the global market that would serve everybody, and one for more of like a niche market for like salespeople. And uh, eventually, we focused on the consumer product just because we thought it was larger, it was more exciting. If we got it right in the consumer market, we know, we know that we could do it in the, in the B2B market. That, that would be definitely possible. Um, but um, what we went out with was really simple. Uh, had a small business plan that sort of summarized the, the, the pain, the main pain that we were solving, summarized the solution to solve that pain, uh, explained the addressable market with, you know, not too much necessary, uh, you know, research, but just enough to back up our ideas and um, the things that we were trying to do. But the number one thing that I had that I think that really got me meetings and got me money was we had high fidelity Photoshop uh, uh, designs. We knew what the product was going to work uh, do, and when I say designs, I don't mean like it looked really pretty, which you know, it, I think it looked very nice. Um, but what it was more than anything, or it was the user flow. We were showing investors through, uh, you know, keynote and PowerPoint, how the user would flow through the product and how it would solve scheduling. And basically, what it was, it was a bunch of Photoshop files that I put into a keynote. And I animated the keynote so that as I hit the click button, um, it would make it look like as if the app was real. So it almost gave our investors the appearance of a real app. And not only that, but it also made them go, wow, yeah, if I had an app that did that, that would be helpful. And when I got them to that emotional level where they could relate to the product and they could see the pain and they could see the solution, um, that's when the, the conversation about how much money do you need, what kind of team do you want to build, uh, started, you know, kind of kind of parlayed into that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so good because you didn't spend a dollar of development money, but you were able to show them exactly how the app was going to work, which right. in turn got them interested in it. So you you went around, you were able to raise around, you had your money. What was it like building Atlas? Like, did you have to? Did you know developers? Did you have to go out and find them? H- had you developed anything before? Was this all new to you? Um, well, it's interesting because my, my partner and I, at the time, we had kind of, we, 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 and we still do to this day, we co-own a, a digital agency called Mingling Media. And Mingling Media was, is a digital agency that you know, does promoting and marketing as well as product development for uh, mobile applications and websites. Mobile was something new that we were sort of getting into. So we were really beginning to kind of um, you know, understand what we were building. Um, I'll tell you the truth. We had to build the product a couple of different times. Um, first time uh, we built it because I was trying to raise seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but I only was able to raise a hundred. Mm-hmm. So we built um, what we could for a hundred thousand, and quickly realized that wasn't going to be enough to really get this complex problem solved. Um, so we were able to take those designs originally and raise that first hundred. Then we took that first hundred and we built the first prototype. And around around two thirds of the way through building the first prototype, uh, I'm sorry, around two thirds of the money. So around sixty or seventy thousand spent on the hundred, we realized we weren't going to get all the way. So that's when we kind of t- took the rest of the money that we had and we said, how can we make the most viable prototype? We know it's not going to hit the market. How can we show the investors everything that we're capable of doing? Mm. So then we sort of used this 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 prototype we had to further um, our agenda and say, hey, listen, last time we came to you with um, screenshots, now we're coming to you with something that actually I can put in your hand you can play with. Uh, you know, the data is somewhat real, the interaction is, is real, um, but obviously it's not live on the store yet. So then they were like, well, what do you need to push this to the store? Well, we need to rebuild it. We need a real database. We need a, you know, a real team. And, I, and at the time, we were sort of using 
are, are sort of like agencies, resources. And that wasn't something that could work long term. And, and we wanted a team. We wanted to build a team because we know that to be successful in startup and the reason why teams get bought out and the reason why teams raise huge amounts of money is because they're backing a team. And so uh, that's when we started going out and like looking for developers. And you know, we had been doing this the whole time. But basically what we had done was we found three or four, I think at the time it was two uh, developers, one being our kind of like chief of tech and then one being our like lead iOS engineer. And we had these two guys, and they were ready to come on board, and we basically said, okay, great. So we know you want to come on board. Let us go raise money knowing that. And so we went out there and said, listen, you know, we want to raise like another five or 600000 We want to do this the right way. We want to get to the market. Uh, we want to bring on board these two guys. They're ready to come on board. Uh, this is what the team is going to look like. You know, Four months after we bring these guys on board, we want to bring these other people on board. They haven't given us uh, a yes yet, but we haven't even really talked to them seriously yet. But we've got these two guys for sure. So we started to put together the team so that they could start to see how we would get to a Series A. And I think that is, that is the question that people in the in, in, angels want to know. How are you going to get from me giving you a $25,000 check in a, 50, uh, in a 500K round how are you going to go from that to raising a two to seven million dollar round in a Series A from you know, institutional investors up in Silicon Valley? How are you going to do that? And the answer I had was, well, with a hundred grand I built the prototype. With the next five hundred grand, I can put the team together and build the first version and get some traction. And with that, that's what we would go out there and raise Series A. And that's how we raised our first, you know, roughly million dollars. I love that story. That's really great. And it just it makes perfect sense that these angel investors, which for anybody listening, like angel investor is just somebody that will makes a bet on you. They're like the very, very first stage. So after like family and friends, you ask them for money, then you go to angels. And then if you're raising like venture capital and venture capitalists, you're a bit more formed of a company because it's larger amounts and they it, it's it's more like corporate versus angel is less. Is that how you would describe it? Is that what you'd say? I, w- I would say that you're pretty accurate with that. I, th- I think angels are relatively informal. Um, I think that they like to present themselves as they're very sophisticated. And for many of them, um, you know, I should say for several of them, they probably are um, very sophisticated people that could be running a VC, um, but perhaps they had such a large exit themselves that they're kind of like their own little VC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they like to get in early where they can sort of see it before it really becomes obvious. Um, there's a sense of pride to that. Um, you know, I'd say about one quarter of the angels involved in my company are like that. Very smart, know what they're doing, um, um, you know, can help. Uh, the other three quarters, I don't want to say they're not smart. They're very, very smart, you know, incredibly successful entrepreneurs or lawyers or doctors. Um, but they're more just diversifying their their portfolio. They've got some extra cash to spend, and they found out that, Hey, here's this round of here's this round here's this, here's this guy. He's raising 500k. He's got 400 committed or 350 already in. Hey, I'll write him a 25k check. It sounds like a good idea. And there's a lot of those out there. So you kind of got to get it going with some more of the uh, professional tech investors. Once you have the, those kind of leads in your round, then it's a little bit easier to go get it filled out with the rest of the angels that kind of follow on. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense that I think a lot of people, if they just have an app idea, they're like, if I prove that my idea is good, they're going to give me money when really that's not the case. They want to prove that you're not just going to – like your idea isn't just going to work, but that you are the right person to build it, that you are the right person to build the team that's going to build it, and they're going to want to see how they get the return. So there's there's so much more involved than simply like, this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think things have changed a little bit too because mm-hmm. – you know, it used to be that Series A, the first institutional round, kind of came when the company was on the cusp of something. Um, like they had built the, the they had built the product with their seed capital, and here they are. They have a fully fledged product, and now what they need is marketing capital and you know two more years of runway to, to build out all the features that they weren't able to build during seed, and maybe even begin to monetize a little bit. That that's what it used to be like, and what I think it's kind of turning into is. Series A now is more like what Series B used to be, and I'm sure I'm not the first to say this. So they want to see a company that has proven 
um, viability. And then that viability is either huge amounts of eyeballs consistently coming back, like a Snapchat, you know, mm-hmm. where it's just so obvious, or a company like a, like a Dropbox where they're making money. And I don't know if Dropbox is making money early, but, you know, a company that might have its first couple of customers that doesn't have a ton of traction, but they've, they've proven that the product that they built in seed can make money. And, and that's what they're looking for now. So angels are, are sort of becoming um, much more dependent you know, people are becoming more dependent upon them because they're going back to their angels for a second round. They're going back to they're going to raise the initial round to seed the company to build the product, and then there's no Series A for those people. And in, in, in a lot of cases, where they're trying to raise that Series A, but they just basically have a product, but it hasn't really, you know, taken the market by storm yet. Um, but it's a good product; it serves a purpose, and the people who have it like it. Um, and so what happens is you end up going back to your angel investors in a lot of cases saying, listen, we built the product, um, series a has, has, has pushed back a little bit and they're waiting for us to have bigger numbers and proven traction. And, and you're going back with a slightly higher valuation to angels and raising more capital from angels. So now you're seeing companies that used to maybe raise 500 or 750 in seed and then go raise a three or 4 million series a you're seeing them raise a 500, 750 seed and then go back and raise another 500, 750 K seed and and um, go out there and try to get that Series A. So it just depends uh, on what business you're in, if you're in a consumer business. But for those of you that are listening in, if you're looking to you know, build your own app, um, I think you got to ask yourself, is it an idea for an app or is it an idea for a, a business? And obviously, look at Snapchat. You know, They're not a business, but obviously they, they, they probably had a business in mind after the product became viable. And I think that's all you need to have is what would happen if the product that would, that is your main bread and butter of your company did really well, what would the company then look like? Because I know like right now, I don't really consider our own company a company. You know, we're still you know, new to the market. We're still getting lots and lots of new users and new downloads and people giving us feedback. And um, you know, right now we're just a product, but once the product takes off and has a life of its own, then the company becomes more relevant. And how are you going to you know, make money with the company or how are you going to scale it? Uh, how are you going to bring value to the users long-term? I think that that is one of the most important points just ever is that is being able to tell the difference between a product and a company because companies build products, but just because you have a product does not mean that you're a company. And exactly what you said, that is spot on. Thanks. Yeah, so, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit because the very first version of your idea, what it built into, it was a different uh, application. It, w- it was called Atlas, right? That's right. That's and, right. And then you recently kind of changed, and now it's clutch, and it is beautiful. And oh my gosh, this interface—you guys have to check it out because it just—it's it, a fantastic application. But I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what were your experiences building and running Atlas that made you go into clutch or make the move? Or I'm—I'm I'm not sure what word to use, but it sure. became clutch. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, everything that we did in the beginning was all around this idea called Atlas. And um, what our idea originally was, was to build the best scheduling product out there. But we had thought that the way to solve scheduling was to basically, like I had mentioned earlier, is that kind of what I used to call the two-screen nightmare, where you couldn't see your calendar when you were scheduling. Uh, you know, you'd be emailing or something and you wouldn't have access to it on the same screen. So what we decided to do was give you a calendar as your main screen and have all these kind of peripheral conversations that you're having with people and suggesting multiple times back and forth all kind of happen on the side. And what we learned really quickly from our users was that they really liked it, but that the calendar was almost in their way. And which was kind of almost shocking to us because that was kind of like the whole hypothesis was give these people their calendar so when they're making the conversation and their schedule. But what ended up happening from all the feedback that we got was that the context being the calendar is, is so important, but it's not more important than the conversation itself. And so we started interviewing our users, and we realized that there were really just two types of users. There were kind of professional users, and then, of course, there were more social users. And the professional users, you know, 40 years old or so, and the, and the social users were 20 years old or so. And I've had a chance to actually get on the phone and email back and forth with several, you know, dozens of our users. And the thing that I learned from our users was the way that they scheduled is if you're you know in your 40s in your 50s they use email 
That's how they do it. They, 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 it's a conversation through email. And if you're younger, 20s or 30s, it's typically a conversation done through text messaging or WhatsApp or whatever messaging app that they're using with whomever they're scheduling with. So what we did was we sort of flipped the model on its head. Instead of putting the calendar as Atlas did in the user's uh, face <laughs> and then kind of giving them all these abilities to add you know, extra times and have a chat on the side and all sorts of stuff and having all that stuff on the side, we flipped it and we put the chat front and center and made it so it was like, hey, here's the conversation. And then while they're in the process of suggesting times and scheduling, that's when the calendar pops in. And what we also learned from that process was as important as the calendar was, um, the location, the map was, was important too. So in Atlas, it was only uh, time negotiation. You could only say, where, uh, what time do you want to meet or what time do you want to talk? But with Clutch, we realized as important, if not more important than the timing, was the location. And the location really drove the what. So obviously, you know, we're not going to go to Coffee Bean and watch the Patriots play football. So right off the bat, if, if I'm suggesting Coffee Bean, you sort of know my intentions is to chit-chat. Um, you know, but if I'm suggesting let's go see a concert at Staples Center, you kind of have an idea that I'm looking for more of a, a bigger night out. So what we realized was location, we had to have location. And because we had time negotiation, obviously the user had to have access to their calendar. And because we had location negotiation now, they had to have access to the maps. So we sort of treated them both the same. And with Clutch, the way that we sort of describe the platform is very much so like WhatsApp meets Yelp, WhatsApp meets Foursquare. It's a chat messenger for local friends to stay in touch, but also to make plans. And they chat groups one-on-one, -on -one, and whenever they want to, they can add a plan, suggest a time and place to meet up. They can use all the you know, bells and whistles of Google Places and Foursquare and Yelp to, to find the right place. When they're ready to pick the place, they can see it on a map real quick. When they're ready to add a time to that so they can suggest, hey, let's meet at P.F. Chang's at you know, 6 o'clock. Before they hit that 6 o'clock, they can quickly see their calendar. And then the same thing for the user who's responding. They can look at that with a touch of a button. They can see it on a map. With a touch of a button, they can see it on their calendar, all contained within Clutch. And so that's kind of the, the, the product pivot for us was the vision was always the same. The pain and the, and the friction we're trying to solve is the same. Just the way that we're designing to go about doing that has shifted. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm thinking about the way that I plan things because I, growing up, I was never the person to be like, hey, you guys want to do this? Because for me, it was always like messaging one person who I guess you most want to be there and then see what works for them and then have tentative plans. And then you ask somebody else, but they can't do it. Then you have to go back to the first person. Like it, it's a headache and I would just never do it. And, and as I got older, I kind of realized more the importance of like, if you want to go out and you want to have plans, you need to be the one to initiate it. Don't just sit at home and complain that you're not doing anything. Get out there and do something. And and this seems like it would just be like, all right, I'll get on clutch. And if I want to do something, I'll these people I want to go, here's my idea. What can you do? And and it just it sounds great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And you know, just just for people who sometimes wonder why we call it clutch, there's a there's a couple of reasons why we call it that. And the first is um, there's something spectacular about scheduling where you know nobody really likes to do it. But when it's done, everybody feels like amazing. Everyone feels like they just finished something. And, you know, whether it's, you know, a business person booking a board meeting finally and having, you know, eight people figure out when and where they're going to meet for the board meeting, or whether it's like three friends finally figuring out that they're going to have dinner at this location at this time, uh, there's a feeling of, of just, you know, jubilation when it's completed. And so we felt that the word clutch really did that. You know, you see a touchdown pass and a fourth quarter of a game and, and, and it's a very it's a clutch touchdown pass um you know so there, there, there's that analogy but also the analogy of everything coming together you know friends coming together the time and the place coming together everything sort of comes together that what that's what epitomizes clutch to us and further we really believe that friends can then meet up and have these unbelievable experiences together because this is another purpose of this of this whole scheduling thing is, you know, I think social media is taking over people's social lives to the point where people actually think they're interacting with friends because they're seeing what friends are doing and they're clicking a like button on Facebook or they're on Instagram and they, and they double click on a picture and they think, hey, yeah, I see you, 
you know, partying in New York and I double clicked on it. So I was, I was there sort of, I, I, I saw it happen. And what we want to do is kind of move away from that and say, listen, you know, instead of hanging out with friends virtually, hang out with friends in real life and create those experiences. We're calling them clutch experiences where you're with your friends, having a good time and the experience is clutch. It's great. It's grand. You want to capture it. You want to memorialize it. And that's the thing that you want to send to Facebook. That's the thing that you want to post on Instagram created by clutch. I think it's a great name and it's really flexible, like you're saying. And it actually leads into my next question perfectly, because I wanted to ask you, at what point did you decide that you were going to leave all of the marketing and branding that you had done and put behind Atlas and to kind of toss it towards something new and a new name and new everything? Um, it was around last summer. And it was just, uh, you know, sometimes things just don't take off the way you want them to. Um, you know, we had launched a product. We, we saw a lot of good things. And, uh, you know, from just talking to users and seeing the data, I just felt that the product wasn't, it wasn't there yet. Uh, something, something just told me that. Obviously, we weren't seeing, you know, a million downloads or anything like that. But way before that, you can kind of get a sense yourself, whether you really solved it. And I could tell that in my, my own normal day-to-day that it wasn't really making the problem a whole lot better. Uh, a, a, an investor of mine, uh, his name is Clark Landry. He's a pretty successful entrepreneur uh, and, and venture investor here in Los Angeles. He once told me that in consumer, if you're going to try to make a run for your, mo- you know, run for your, your, your money or your startup, you got to make whatever the problem that the consumer is feeling, your product has to solve it tenfold. It has to be a 10x improvement in the user experience. And after using the product, and the calendar was just sort of like in my face, and I, and I, and I use that terminology because that's how it felt about it. Uh, I didn't feel like it was a 10x improvement over how it was. I felt like it was maybe a 2x improvement or a 3x. It was much, much better but it wasn't done. It wasn't like, oh, wow, scheduling has been solved. It was like, well, this is better, but it still left a lot, uh, a lot to be desired. And that's when we sort of said, okay. Um, and I remember it. I was talking to one of, the, one of the guys on my team. His name was James at the time. And I remember going into a room with him and saying, let's just come up with ideas for 30 minutes um, and be creative. And I remember I said to him something that, I, I, to this day, I almost laugh about how, how, how powerful it was. I said to him, I said, what if we got rid of the calendar? <laughs> and he looked at me like, what are you talking about? It's the whole thing is the calendar. And I said, what if we just got rid of the calendar? And I said, let's, let's have a conversation here where there is no calendar in the app. And how do we solve scheduling without a calendar? And it really led to a lot of interesting conversation. And that's what made us start interviewing people again. And when we started talking to users again and saying, do me a favor, pull out your computer, try to schedule with me. And we saw everybody do one of two things. They either went to their phone's messaging or they went to their email, not their calendar. And that's when we realized, okay, we need to make the calendar support the behavior of the conversation that is already going on via email or text and not the other way around. And that was the big epiphany. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, when you're in a situation like that, you have kind of two choices. You can build a new product and then continue to call it Atlas or Atlas 2 or like version 2, like something, or you can build an entirely new brand around it, which is what you did. Why did you make the decision to call it Clutch instead of like Atlas 2.0 or whatever version it sure. would be? That's a great question. Um, well, first off, I, I, I think when I started off, I was a little... Um, too excited to name it Atlas. Um, I don't think it was the appropriate name for it. Now that I look back on, you know, having a couple years of experience in startup, I love the name. I was, I was, I was very emotionally invested into the name uh, for a couple of reasons. I thought that it was very obvious to me, not to others, that uh, Atlas was a navigational thing, and we navigated the the muddy waters of scheduling. But it wasn't that obvious. Um, Number two, it's sort of like if somebody tells you, don't, you know, don't, um, somebody says to you like, hey, I'm in the market to buy a Prius. All of a sudden for like two weeks, you can't, you can't miss all the Priuses on the road. You, you know, for, for weeks, you don't even notice any Priuses. And then all of a sudden you say the word Prius in your head, you start looking for it and you see it. 
So as soon as we named the company Atlas, uh, I started going out into the world and started seeing it everywhere. Uh, it's a very, very common business name. Um, it's a very hard thing to brand because there's a lot of companies named Atlas, you know, paper companies, uh, B2B companies, software companies, trucking companies, you name it. There's a company in every sphere called Atlas something. And so to, to brand the, the word Atlas uh, without adding something to it, like Atlas Calendar, was going to be a huge expense on marketing. And so we started thinking about what can we do that was more like Snapchat, you know, like a simple calendar or easy schedule. And nothing that we came up with, um, you know, so again, first we made the decision to change the name. So that was a big deal. Then when we were looking, you know, again, we started thinking of things like Snapchat or Instagram, things that are very descriptive, um, Facebook. And none, no, nothing that we came up with is, was sexy to us, you know, like any plan or quick plan or quick chat or local friends. Nothing was exciting. And that's when a friend of mine and an advisor said, well, what if you epitomize the emotional feeling after scheduling is done? And his original idea was brilliant, and it was to call the company Chair. And it wasn't a really great name, but it gave me such great ideas. I said, why call it Chair? And he said, call it Chair because you have like your younger people who are like your social chairs, and they're the ones that are sort of like putting everything together. And then your older people, they're like the chairman of the boards. And I really, really liked it. I was like, what a cool word, like chair. Obviously, the word chair is not that cool. Um, <laughs> but I, I just liked his, his out-of-the-box kind of abstract thinking. And that's when I started lo- looking for words that had emotion. And we looked at so many different things. And I think I must have been watching a football game. And, you know, somebody threw a great touchdown pass and the quarterback was like, what a clutch pass or something like that. And I was like, that's the feeling. That's the feeling I want people to feel when they book a time to meet their friends and they have that rush that comes to them like, yes, I booked plans with friends. I can't wait till Friday night. I can't wait to see everybody. Um, Awesome. I feel so great because the truth is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I was a psychology major at Yale. I feel that the anticipation and, um, you know, the, the, the anticipation of fun is oftentimes much more fun than the actual fun itself. Knowing you have a vacation coming up can be the best time of your life, even more exciting than the actual vacation. Oh, yeah. So that, that moment when you book the, the, the fun thing that you're going to do with your friends is almost more exhilarating sometimes than actually being with your friends. That's kind of, you know, and that's obviously not what we're trying to, you know, push forward, but that feeling is what we thought was clutch. And um, then we did some user testing, talked to a lot of users, and they just loved it. They loved the word. They, they, they thought that, um, you know, it was something to, easy to remember. We use, we're obviously using a K instead of a C. So there's some uniqueness there. So branding becomes a, a little bit easier. But, yeah, so that's why we changed it. And that was the journey. And I will say finding the right name for your company is everything and very, very difficult. Oh, yeah. It really is. And and the K sound, the clutch, is good. I, I was watching something on like Bloomberg on the company that was Spanx, which is like that the women's underwear tightening thing. And she was talking about coming up with a name and how the KS, the K, is like in so many big brands, it stands out so much. And I, I love clutch. Like I, I think it's a really good name. And, and having that feeling where you're like, that's what it's going to be, like, it's such a good feeling. Sure, sure. I want to talk to you briefly about your launch, uh, just because you guys were everywhere. I saw this written about like at New York Times. I saw it at Washington Post. You guys were featured in the App Store, all of these places. How far in advance did you start planning the launch of Clutch? Um, yeah, I would probably say this is one of my weaker points, um, you know, in my in, in an area that I want to get better at. Which is good to is, talk about. Is, I love this. Yeah, you know, you can't be great at everything. And it's about getting good people around you. And I'm very grateful that I have a good friend named uh, Zach Servideo who's helped me and advised me in how to market the products. He works for uh, a PR agency here in Los Angeles called the Mix Agency. We worked with them. Um, and, uh, you know, the, we, we, for us, we wanted to get this product out in the hands of, you know, at least a few thousand users on the first couple of days just so we could start getting feedback to really iterate. And so the PR was more so just to attract that initial base. Um, we got a lot more adoption than we had expected off of that. Um, but again, it was really meant 
for the purpose of getting these people to give us feedback. And so that was the intention of the PR campaign. It wasn't to 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 to, to go get a million downloads or anything like that, which of course is is now the the goal. But when we first put it out there, we just wanted to get feedback, and so we put it into a bunch of different channels. Uh, I probably started maybe three or four weeks before we launched to get that fee- to get those uh, to get those articles written, um, and a lot of it just sort of came. Uh, kind of, you know, through our PR guys. So I, I can't really take too much of the credit for it. Um, we had one in-house person kind of reaching out as well. Uh, a couple of relationships that we had had here in Silicon Beach and in, in, in Santa Monica that we had met, but nothing, it wasn't really too fabricated. It wasn't a really long tail strategy. I didn't spend that much money, you know, less than five figures for, for all of the money I've ever spent on all of our marketing efforts has been less than $10,000. Um, so, you know, very, very, very um, scrappy user acquisition strategy. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of PR, but I, I also don't think that a company should spend a lot of money on it, which is sort of like a, a double-edged sword, I guess. But um, user acquisition is a, is, a, is a whole other business in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And for me, <clears throat> PR was just a piece but not a piece of the user acquisition strategy. It was a piece of the product uh, roadmap because we were using it to get feedback quickly so that instead of t- taking a few weeks to get a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of users, we could do it right off the bat. That was really the reason why we did it. Awesome. And, and it seemed to work because here you are doing that, <laughs> which is awesome. Awesome. So yeah. at this point in the show, we actually have a, a caller question to play. And I'm so excited because this is still brand new. So I'm, I'm excited to be doing this brand new feature in the podcast. Um, and I think that you are the perfect guest to talk about this. And as soon as I play it, everybody listening, uh, or I played it in the intro, you guys know, so it's about capital. So I'm going to play the question again, and then we can just jump right in. Hi, my name is Ellen, and I'm from San Francisco. I've got a great idea for an app, but it's really complicated, and I'm afraid it's going to cost a lot of money to make. Should I try to find an investor? Thanks ahead of time for answering my question. I'm a big fan of the podcast. That is a great question. That is a very good question. Yeah. So I'll break down the question into to two parts. So the, first, the second part is about raising capital. <clears throat> the first part is I have a great idea, and it's really complicated. <clears throat> so my first part would be why is it a great idea? Is it a great idea because you think it's a great idea or it's a great idea because you've talked to, you know, 30 of your friends and they've all said it's a great idea and you've talked to 10 strangers and you've maybe done a survey monkey for 20 bucks. Um, my point is, if you think it's a viable idea, uh, I hope you're saying that because you've done some of these things. And if you haven't, this is a great opportunity to do that. You have the ability to um, start talking to people about this problem Again, these points of friction. Find out if what you're suggesting, you're, you're proposing, solves that friction. You've got to do it in a way that you can't say, <clears throat> you know, hey, um, what do you hate about this? Well, would this fix it? Because that's giving them the answer. What I mean is, and, and by the way, that's exactly what I did with our first version of our product called Atlas. Uh, instead of, you know, asking the user how to solve their problem, I was like, would this solve your problem? And instead of asking the user for a thought-filled answer, they, all they had to do was say yes or no. And that's a problem. You don't want yes or no answers. You want a descriptive answer. You want to see how they think. So consider going to your users, your, your, your target users. Hopefully you've identified <clears throat> your target users. So, you know, for example, <clears throat> if your target user is a Snapchat user, whatever your dad tells you is irrelevant. Whatever your college roommate tells you is very relevant. These are different kinds of things. It might be obvious, but <clears throat> some people might not know. So that's the first thing is, is talk to your, your target users. And then I would ask them questions like, <clears throat> how could this be better? How, is this prob- how could this problem be better? Have them explain that to you and walk you through that without you telling them your idea. See if they explain to you your idea. And then you can sort of throw some things in there. Again, this is all to validate the idea. Second thing I would do <clears throat> validate the market size. So let's say you've actually figured out that this is a big problem. Well, how big of a problem are you solving? Are you solving a problem of, you know, all coffee drinkers are going to benefit from this? Well, that's a huge market. Um, At the same time, I'd say, how are you going to get into the market? So maybe you're going to fix it for, you know, coffee drinkers in this demographic that like this kind of latte. That might be a more interesting way for investors to even be interested because they realize you're not going after all coffee drinkers, which sounds too big, but you're smart enough to go after a niche of coffee drinkers. 
to then later get to the bigger. So again, know your product, make sure that you're actually solving a problem, that the, that the solution that you think you have is the one that the users are looking for, and that it's been somewhat validated. Now let's move into the, should I raise money and capital? This is a, this is a, this is a very, very tough question to answer because it depends upon kind of who you are. We could be talking to some people on the line right now that you're an entrepreneur at heart and you're in a career right now where you're willing to, willing to walk away and do this full time and you're willing to go after this 100% and you've got six months of burn in the bank so you can focus on this full time. We could also be talking to people who are fully employed at a job they like and they're just thinking about this as like, hey, my, you know, everyone seems to have an app right now. I, I think I need one too. And, and you're just thinking, hey, I don't want to leave my job. I don't want to do this full time. So I realize that there's a, there's a spectrum. So let me put it this way. If you are considering building an app, anybody can do that. And I think you should. If you're considering starting a company and raising outside angel capital, taking someone else's money, consider that the only thing of value to the company on the day that they put money in is the fact that you're willing to work your ass off 40 hours a day. <laughs> and I know there's only 24 hours in a day. So the, that's what investors are putting money into. They're, they're these older guys that say, listen, I've got the money, and you're this younger guy or this younger girl, and you've got all this time. So what they're willing to do is part with their money because they have more of it because they want to give it to you because you have time and you have more of it. And so if you're willing to put a lot of time in and you're willing to um, you know, really devote yourself to it, then I would say, sure, why not raise money? Uh, but figure out exactly how much you need. How much is it going to take to raise uh, – how much is it going to take to build your first prototype? Or how much is it going to take to get you to the market? Raise what you think you need. So if you think you need you know, $250,000 to build your product and get to the market on iPhone, for example, then go raise $250,000 and go get your product on, uh, on the App Store. And then do that and, and, and focus on those things. And a couple of things that can help you do that is bring on board a designer that can help you design the, the user flows and things like that. Um, but again, all along the way, every step of the way that you go, you want to be showing uh, screenshots to the potential users. You want to be talking to the potential users as you learn more information, as you start to build the product or design the product. Everything that you learn, bring it back to the users. Ju you know, double check that you're doing the right thing. Um, double check that what you're doing is, is something that they're excited about all along these things. And as you go through the process of raising capital with investors, they're going to ask you for things. And some of them, you got to be careful because some of them can be red herrings. But for the most part, they're relevant. Hey, I want to see, uh, you know, for example, if they say I want to see a five-year projection of revenue and you're talking about raising $250,000 in a seed round to get the app to market, that's an inappropriate thing for them to ask. Are they allowed to ask for it? Yeah. Um, should you do it? No, no, because if you're raising 250K and it's supposed to last you for eight months or nine months to get a product in the market, they're not even giving you five years worth of money. So why should you give them a plan on five years? What you should give them a, a plan is, here's how I'll spend every dollar for nine months, and here's what I'll do with the next round of money that I plan to raise on that ninth month. Let me say that again. So you want to raise 250 for nine months. I would show an investor, hey, look, here's my plan for the next year and a half to two years. I plan on raising 250 grand today. I will use that money like this, 90% into development, 10% overhead, and then on, nine, on the ninth month, we launch the product into the market. A month before that, we're going to then raise another bridge round, or we're going to raise a, a Series A of $3 million. And here's how I'm going to spend that 18 months of capital. And that's all you need. Show them what you're going to do with their money, and then show them how you're going to get the next money. That's all they want to know when you raise money. You can show them those two things. Then you have a conversation about, do I have a problem that I'm solving? And do, are, are we the team to solve that problem? If you're not going to go full time, um, you're going to have problems raising capital. Simply because people are investing in the availability of your time. The fact that you're going to bang your head up against this seven ways to Sunday to figure it out. And that's what I have done. You know, my first launch, Atlas, was successful, but not as successful as it could be. So I kept working on it. I kept, you know, trying to figure out ways to do it. And then we launched Clutch, much more, much more successful. And so I think what your investors are looking for is someone who is resourceful. Someone who is full of resources, and one of those resources is going to be your time. Another one is going to be your creativity, and the third one is going to be your resilience. And those things are all required 
for you to get to, to, to the point where you can actually raise some capital. I, so I hope that helps. Yeah, I think that was, that was an amazing answer. I, I don't have anything to add. Um, one of the things I just I wanted to uh, call out just because I thought it was funny is talking about investors being like old guys with the money and they're trading that for your time to build something. And the, the very first thing that I thought taught or the very first thing that I thought about was as I get older, my willingness to buy like books, online courses, because that's exactly what I'm doing. As I'm older, older, I now have more money and I can trade that for time. And that's the time spent learning certain skills. Because when you're younger, you're like, I'm going to scour the internet. I'm going to spend hours doing this and this and this. And as I get older, I'm like, my time is more valuable. I'm just going to get this. It's a good resource. I'm going to learn it. And that's kind of what they're doing, but for businesses, because they know how to build businesses. They can give the entrepreneurs advice and everything, but they're trading their, their money for that time. And I think that's a fantastic way to think about it. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's, that's what we all want to get to. You know, obviously, we all want to get to a place in life where we can, we can take our money and send it out, and it comes back with more friends. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you don't have to necessarily spend as much time. And you know, obviously, when you're young, you don't have anything. Time is your most, you know, your most plentiful resource. It's all you've got. And so that's why um, when you go to a VC, when you go to a, uh, an angel investor, what they want to know is how are you going to spend your time? Because that's what they're investing in. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, this has been an absolutely valuable chat. I've had so much fun. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, well, Dan, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll have uh, some of your listeners check out Clutch and uh, give us some feedback. Yeah, definitely. And on that note, if anybody wants to download Clutch or get in contact with you, how can they do that? Um, well, we've been featured on the App Store. So if you just check out the social networking section of the App Store on, for an iPhone, you'll, you'll see us right there. But um, if by the time you get a chance to hear this, maybe it's in the past, uh, check out Clutch, uh, getclutch.com. So you can go to get Clutch with a K. Dot com and you can download the app. Awesome. And again, this is Dan Novice No Longer, which is novicenolonger.com. You can also find this podcast in iTunes and Stitcher and all that kind of stuff. Uh, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you. Once again, we have reached the end of another episode. And if you are still listening to this, I just want to personally say thank you. Thank you for being a listener and for tuning in every week and helping me turn my dream of having this podcast into a reality and having these conversations with these amazing people. And it's helping me learn. I really hope it's helping you learn. And if you've learned something from this, if you think any of your friends or anybody you know could also learn something from this, please share it with them. Send them a link, send them an email, put this on social media. It, I really appreciate it because I'm trying to do a big push to get this out there and get this to blow up. And it takes people like you that have learned and enjoyed this to share it with your friends. So if that is you, please do that. And yeah, another thing you can do is go into iTunes and leave me a rating and a review because that really helps because iTunes is really the number one source that people use to find podcasts these days. And having those reviews is going to help me rank higher and help more people find out about me. So please leave a review. And if you do that, I might just share it on air. So just like last week, I'm going to give you the same challenge that I did. And I'm going to end this with a challenge that I want you to do one more action item that you need to do in order to get closer to making your app. Whatever it is for you, if it's writing down a business plan or something that you learned in this episode about establishing the next nine weeks if you had capital, maybe it's sending emails to the press or whatever it is for you, do that action item and we're going to check in next week and I'm going to make that challenge to you again. So slowly and surely together, we're going to get closer to getting your app done and I will talk to you then. 